Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Proof of Coverage podcast. I'm your host, Connor Lovely, and I've got Jonah Platovsky from Hexagon Wireless as well as Mahesh and Sal from EV3, which is a venture fund that does a lot of investing in the DUI space. So today we're going to have a candid conversation about the different things that we're doing in DUI, whether it's on the operational kind of mining accelerator side with Hexagon or more on the venture investing side with Sal and Mahesh. But with that, I will give it to Jonah to kick us off. Jonah, if you could tell us a bit about you know what you're doing in DUI now, what Hexagon's role is in the space, and then just like a brief background on, on what you did before. Yeah. So came across the DUI space in summer 2020, actually, along with Connor, we came across the Helium project and bought kind of an OG hotspot right at the beginning, you know, really intrigued by what was going on in the space and had a chance to really dive into the discords and the community, scaled up a mining business between the two of us in a college town in Gainesville, Florida. So built a kind of mining operation from one hotspot each to 10 hotspots each and then kind of ended up with between 75 and 100. Um, and that was a great experience for me, not just on the kind of building a mining business side, but also really understanding what was going on in this kind of very intriguing area of crypto. I mean, it was also my introduction to the you know, broader crypto space as well. So, you know, went to go do investment banking at RBC covering kind of legacy telecom companies. And then you know, had the amazing chance to kind of rejoin the space and join the Hexagon team at the beginning of 2022. Been in a great experience so far. You know, so what exactly does Hexagon do? You know, we see ourselves as a kind of protocol agnostic accelerator of the space. You know, we are, are taking a view on DUI as a whole. We you know, see a lot of promise in this area and, you know, very just intrigued by, you know, what the kind of path that Helium has trailblazed, proving that, you know, you can build physical networks from the ground up using token incentives. So, you know, we're kind of taking a view that this is something that's going to become, you know, a very significant industry, not just as a subsector of crypto, but also something that is, you know, complementary uh, and potentially, you know, competitive to the legacy kind of telecom networks as they exist today. But we're mining from very early stage and then, you know, hoping and kind of continuing to build software and solutions on top of these protocols, you know, as they begin to mature, you know, hoping to begin pushing protocols towards their end state of, you know, data demand and, you know, revenue generation, just like any normal business would. So, you know, we're really excited for what's going on here. Uh, you know, we consider ourselves to almost be like, you know, operating capital. You know, we go out, find protocols from early stage. That's what we're doing with Paul. And that's what we've done with, you know, some helium and some kind of other projects that are beginning to emerge, you know, scale a mining business and then, you know, find other ways to add value to those protocols. I'm sure we're going to discuss a little bit more about, you know, Hexagon in more detail, but I'll let the, you know, EV3 guys tap in and kind of discuss what they do in the space. Absolutely. Maybe I'll kick it off from there. And guys, really appreciate all of this. It's a great opportunity to talk about a bunch of ideas that, you know, have been circulating around our conversations, but maybe haven't gotten there broadly yet. So, you know, to start off, uh, to introduce myself, my name is Mahesh. I'm an investor at Escape Velocity Ventures or EB3. And, uh, you know, I'm a student of incentive systems. And partially that's because I was raised very religiously and would spend so much time growing up on the pageantry of it, which I found exhausting at the end of the day. So I had a bit of an aha moment, honestly, when I got to the sixth grade and I found macroeconomics because I understood religion and economics almost as like two very different types of incentive systems. And, you know, when thinking through what really defined those systems, it came down to this idea of like combining a shared worldview with a consistent way to reward action. 
And, you know, in religion, it's the punitive system of divine reward and punishment, i.e. heaven and hell. In economics, it's financial incentives, yeah. i.e. systems based on capitalism. And, you know, those two incentive systems, when you look at the arc of history, have produced the most extreme feats of human innovation and achievement, whether it's the pyramids or, you know, the U.S. as it exists today. And for me, the aha moment was in 2015 when I found Ethereum because I recognize crypto as one of these systems that could completely re-engineer the way we think about incentives and the way we think about aligning incentives. And that struck me even harder when I found decentralized wireless in 2020. And just like Jonah and Connor, I found Helium pretty early. It was crazy. I got reached out to by some farmer in India on Twitter. who was just talking about this project that he was working on to see if I had known anything about it and went really deep as a function of that and recognized it as exactly this an incentive system that you know could create huge amounts of value by just catalyzing innovation at scale. Very quickly on my background, you know, I've been a corporate investor for a number of years. I spent a couple of years at Goldman in the banking group, focused on sort of more legacy industries. And then in the last couple of years, I was at Apollo doing private equity, running the whole gamut of investing from buyouts to distressed deals to even some crypto stuff. And, you know, Sal here was one of my best friends. We worked together at Goldman and we'd be working from 9 a.m. to 12 a.m. every day. But we find that the time between 12 and 3, we were just talking about these amazing ideas and uh, everything really came together when we found DY and decided to found Escape Philosophy as a function of that. So, you know, I'll turn it over to Sal now maybe to give his introduction as well. That is basically it. I was Mash's best friend at Goldman. We competed for everything. I, for the last couple of years, working at a venture capital firm called Dredos back to some of the leading crypto companies and DeFi protocols in the space. And we also invested in Helium and in Nova Labs as part of that in, in 2021. And it's just really nothing had hit me in crypto besides Bitcoin, the way that sort of seeing Helium like compound its way at like 50% month over month and grow the lower network globally was something nobody had ever done before. And it was yeah, a signal for me and Mahesh in our conversations and seeing you guys start Hexagon and a bunch of other entrepreneurs go and you know, realize like the power that they were holding into their hands by leveraging this proof of coverage and the things that you can do with incentives and how shitty the old telcos were. And just like, they're not even worried really about what might be coming for them. It gave us a conviction. We decided to go raise from a fund around it and you know, I've had an awesome time partnering with you guys and some of the other teams uh, in space for the last couple of months. Yeah, no, appreciate the intros, guys. I guess just for context, my background super similar to Jonas. Two two pairs of best friends here, I think. I've known Jonas since our freshman year of college. And the only difference really in our backgrounds, you know, same undergrad major, same master in finance, same kind of entryway into crypto and helium. I went to go work for Boston Consulting Group and Strategy Consulting rather than investment banking and was there for about the same time amount of time as Jonah and then and left to go co-found Hexagon in January of this year as well. So I think Jonah gave a bit of an intro on Hexagon and what we're doing. Sal and Mahesh would love to hear a bit more about EV3, your involvement with DY and how you guys you know, view DY from an investor's lens. Yeah, 100%. I'll start letting Mahesh take it. Basically, just to give everyone context on us, what we're trying to build, we started Escape Velocity a couple of months ago, trying to be a really a thesis-driven early stage investment firm partnering with crypto founders like as early as possible. And, you know, venture markets in general, especially in crypto, are extremely competitive. There's a lot of investors with a lot of capital, a lot of connections. We basically try to deliver one thing that we think we do better than anyone else, which is focus. And for the last six, 12 months, we've been focusing exclusively on on DY. And again, we think it's one one of the most obvious and the biggest and the most valuable opportunities uh, that's out there for crypto to just rewire the world around us. and. You know, just because of the 
kind of like unique overlap of talents that you need to understand or interest really that you need to understand the space, whether that's like going out and climbing towers, deploying hardware, understanding how the internet works, and at the same time, being able to understand these, you know, really legacy businesses that are, you, you just, it's so important to have uptime and reliability than Tunco networks that the pace of innovation is very slow. And we, you know, we, we saw what Helium did and really indexed ourselves to like the talent flow as investors. That's the best thing you can do is just try to, you know, follow your nose about where the really talented and risk tolerant people are going. And we saw that in droves with DY with folks going and starting companies in the space that either were explicitly DY companies, like, you know, like, like you guys coming and pitching the idea for Xgon back at the beginning of the year or companies that were like DY adjacent, where we could tell that once Helium or Pollen or other networks are at scale, these businesses are just going to have like this unique toolkit to go and take over their respective markets, whether that's delivering cellular service or delivering internet service to the home or various other types of connectivity services to businesses and consumers. And we indexed pretty heavily, I think, on the last 10 years of tech and specifically fintech, where at the end of the financial crisis, like there was a financial grid. There were 500,000 banks connected around the world, but nobody had built the actual applications to go and build good consumer products on top that people wanted to buy. And in 2012, like, you know, Plaid launched, Robinhood launched, like Coinbase had just launched in 2015. Like, as soon as you had this, like, flip in the consumer's minds that they actually could try multiple bank accounts, they didn't need just one. And, you know, the Apple App Store started letting fintech entrepreneurs start, you know, build, build these things. Like, there was an absolute explosion. And some of the best founders, some of the few, you know, biggest companies, like, there's got to be at least... 10 fintech companies that are valued at $10 billion or more today by that basically, you know, took this playbook and said, we're going to build a better user interface layer because now we have this composable backend that we can find new ways to deliver value to consumers. Whether that's, you know, Robinhood saying we're going to do peep up and now we're going to offer like free stock trading that had never happened before. It's kind of the same tools that we see in DY where, you know, an MVNO is going to be able to take the these networks that are built and transfer data over them and just dramatically reduce their reliance on the old telco system. Um, and by doing that, they are able to serve customers in a new way. They can give that value back to customers directly. They can reinvest in different areas. I think all that stuff just lets to believe that this is like the beginning of a really massive wave of change in the telco industry. And, you know, we, the uh, graphic for this podcast, like the most of the telco industry, we're just convinced are simmering away. Most of them are gone. There's a couple left. Really, the only one that's left is like having radio networks at scale. And these DUI networks are really rapidly showing that we can also scale radio networks. And so when I think about just, you know, these telco execs like sleeping soundly in their bed at night, and I think of us at 2 a.m. texting each other about the future of DUI, it's, you know, st- starting escape velocity for us is a way to get as much leverage as we can to, to that trend. Absolutely. You're not a fan of those $70 million pensions after you leave. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, look, I think Sal as you probably heard there's the king of going deep and just thinking fundamentally from the bottom up. I'll try to summarize maybe the top down of YDY as far as we can see it, but really comes down to three very simple things at the end of the day. The first is that these systems eliminate just hundreds and billions of dollars of redundant spectrum licensing costs, rental costs, and CapEx-related costs. So the result is you have much better secular margins, and the unit economics looks so, so much better than any of the traditional telco businesses. Sal's done a ton of extensive writing on this, and we can go into this a bit deeper going forward, but I just want to stay on the high level for now. So the second thing is really that they're open source and peer-to-peer, so they're actually much more resilient to both 
brute force attacks, i.e. think, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the first thing they did was they took down the telco systems, they bombed them. And the result was, you know, Ukraine had awful coverage. With these kinds of systems, it's all peer to peer. And it's very hard to take down the network from any one given spot, because they can always just reform connections. And the second type of security threat is like backdoor attacks. Think about what Huawei has been doing over the last 20 years. Think about the amount of money we're now spending. I think it's like $5 billion to rip Huawei's equipment out of the ground in the US alone, just because people figured out that like there was only almost a one-to-one overlay between where Huawei had set up their networks in the US and military bases. So like these systems are actually far safer because you know exactly what's going on in the background. And there's far less ability for someone malicious to come in and actually do something that's harmful to the system. And lastly, and most importantly, it's like they crush incumbent oligopolies by democratizing pathways for data flow. At the end of the day, like when you think about why Verizon can charge as much as they can charge, it's because they will route your data from point A in California all the way to point B in New York and take it every step of the way through their system to get there or the offload agreements that they've come to. DY is going to crush switching costs for telcos the way neobanks have for traditional banks, because at the end of the day, you're creating an infinite number of pathways for data to flow. And the result of that is going to be pricing better improvements to pricing. And you already see that in Helium. I mean, they're trying to charge somewhere like 50 cents to a dollar for a gigabyte of data transfer on 5G versus, you know, four to six dollars for Verizon is what Steve Sellers has estimated. Look, I think at the end of the day, that's a pretty stark difference. And if you look at the Lore network, it's even bigger. So I'll leave it at that. But at the end of the day, as you can tell, we're incredibly convicted around this industry. And there are just some big secular trends at the end of the day that you just can't get away from. Yeah, no, absolutely. For context, EV3, so Sal and Mahesh were one of the first checks into our seed round as a company. So they've been with us along the entire ride. have been incredibly helpful, value-added investors. I think the anecdote that speaks <laughs> most highly to, to their dedication would be uh, when I was in Boston this past weekend, seeing Mahesh at the Harvard campus for HBS. And he's actually there for a few months, basically getting the deals in the lead gen that no one else can in terms of investors. So he's, he's there meeting with like in, kind of the brightest minds, students that might get funded, running the blockchain club. I thought that was pretty fantastic. And I don't think many other VCs or crypto VCs are doing that. So how's being a student been? Has- hey, we're taking a creative path to sourcing. What we realized is at the end of the day, yeah. 98% of the world is looking at 10% of the deals. But there's so many smart kids out there that just need to be empowered to go have an idea and actually execute on it. So I think what we realized was that there's a number of professors on campus here that just see so many interesting ideas because students have ideas and they come and want to riff with these guys. I mean, there's a professor here who wrote the Terra white paper, helped write the Terra white paper. The result is like there's a huge amount of human capital concentrated in this area. And what we've been able to find is yeah. if we can source ideas at the earliest stage here, they actually get the resources enabled in order to sort of make it over the long run. And you you know, I've taken an interesting approach to that is I realized that, you know, I could do the first couple of months of business school every year, drop out after a couple of months. And the result is you just create so much connectivity across campus and you're always sort of relevant as opposed to, I think the approach a lot of other people have taken, which is maybe to park themselves around campus, but then you have no connectivity to students. And I think Sal and I have a unique edge being 26, where we're young enough to be at campus, but old enough to be on boards. And the result of that has kind of been a differentiated sourcing strategy, we think, where like we're spending time on campus, we're spending time in grants programs. And Lastly, just through our networks at the end of the day, we have pretty diverse networks and we're fortunate to be connected to amazing companies like Jonah and Connor who are just out there indexing the market all the time. So the result is just sort of amazing information flow and idea generation. Yeah, I mean, that. Are you going to invest in Luna 2.0? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not.
Get out of here with that. No, I would trust you guys to have the foresight to foresee the tailspin that could occur. But yeah, I mean, that's really the reason we created this podcast is that, you know, we've had the kind of investment relationship for a while. We've been friends for a while now as well. And we've had many, many long conversations about what's going on in the DUI space, what we're excited about, you know, what we're not excited about that maybe a lot of other people are. And this is just kind of a forum for us to record our thoughts get them out there to the public and, you know, hopefully provide some value to people. And I think our target audience is probably, you know, investors that are looking at the DUI space and people that are thinking about it pretty deeply. But we probably want to give a quick overview of what DUI is, some of kind of the key innovations or differences between DUI and other you know, sectors of crypto that people might be more familiar with. So I'll kick it to Jonah first quickly. But just, you know, what has DUI built so far in terms of 2019 till now? And, you know, what are some of the key innovations that, that you've seen that are very different from other sectors of crypto? And then Salamash, if you guys have anything to add on the back of that. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, one more thing about kind of the reason why we made the podcast, I think that, you know, one key differentiator that I do want to highlight is, you know, I'm hoping this is a forum that we can, you know, ask tough questions and be, you know, more candid than, you know, other kind of publicity acts have been kind of regarding crypto at large or more specifically the DUI space. You know, I think there's a lot of exciting innovation here as, you know, we're all spending our full-time jobs doing it, but, you know, also a lot of things that, you know, should be more transparent or should be discussed. And the design space is quite large. And I think there's, you know, choices that people make that, you know, can be discussed and debated and, you know, should be more transparent to investors, participants, the retail community, and, you know, you know, people in the telecom space, because at the end of the day, you know, the way that you grow DY is by, you know, getting more people on board on the vision, whether that's from the crypto side, but I think more importantly, people that are coming from the legacy industry. I mean, if they see, you know, kind of real building going on, you know, they're more likely to jump on board. So, you know, just from our experience at Hexagon over the past couple of months, that has been the consistent themes that there's so many people that might not be crypto native at all, but they're actually quite interested in what the UI is doing because it's really the first real attempt at democratizing and kind of changing the way that networks are built. But they need to see, you know, real development and, you know, real telecom knowledge and just across the board, you know, solutions that have product market fit. So, you know, we're hoping to kind of bring those to light kind of on this podcast. And I guess that's a good segue to like, you know, what has DUI built? And I think, you know, in the intro I gave, that's, it really reflects specifically on that. It's really, I think, the idea that you can build a physical network using token incentives. But right now, we've been speaking a bunch to you know people that have spent their time in site acquisition or kind of real estate acquisition for these tower companies and telecom companies as we kind of grow Hexagon's presence. I and mean, you know, one kind of common thing that comes up is there have been other attempts to do this in the past. So people have tried the revenue share model. They have tried kind of mesh networking, and you know. In the past, all of this really has failed. And that's really just as Mahesh kind of alluded to it. It's all about incentives. I mean, if you don't have people that actually are aligned with the network's goals, like nothing will actually get done. I and mean, I think that, you know, we can discuss Helium Laura as like a good kind of first project because of course this is the trailblazing project. And, you know, I think there's merits to both sides, whether they're, you know, the, the network is still alive or, you know, potentially is really just kind of a practice round for DY. But I think, you know, it, it it's very clear to, to me and probably to everyone here that the model of token incentives really has worked out and played out in a significant way. I mean, you went from a, a network that had zero hotspots in July 2019, and now is about to cross a million nodes across the across the world. You know, providing u- ubiquitous coverage. You know, across the U.S. and Western Europe, parts of Asia, and then also you know touching areas that don't have any coverage at all and really, you know, going from a use case by use case specific basis. So I think that is really the inflection point of the space that, you know, DY has built 
for now, really just proving at the supply side of building out these networks and, you know, and building out coverage. And I think that, you know, as we you know, begin to see that the space flourish, and I, I think it really is flourishing because, you know, we're probably seeing a dozen or so DY, DY adjacent companies raise capital over the past, you know, probably 12 months. We're just excited to see how these kind of take the supply side equation, you know, modify it similar to how Elon Laura did, or, or, you know, make some changes, you know, to better reflect kind of growth goals. Um, there's a lot we can learn from the first network and I'll, I'll let, you know, Hesh or Sal tap into maybe some things that we can learn from, you know, the first kind of example of a DUI network being built out, you know, but again, like, you know, summing it all back, the most exciting thing to me is that the, the supply side of coverage has been proven out. And now it's really about, you know, finding, you know, where do you find product and market fit? You know, where will the demand come from and how do we generate that demand? Mesh or Sal, you want to uh, tap in there on how you view DUI? Let's hear some, let's hear some critiques. Like, yeah, what about Helium's proof of coverage model or Pollen's proof of coverage model or anything on the market today? Like, could be improved pretty quickly. And I think there's like tons of room for improvement in both. I think it's like a massive design space and there's a lot to be figured out. But yeah, what are some things off the top of you guys' head that stick out as like, well, next time around, we should do this differently. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll be the, the DY bear. The bomb thrower. Yeah. yeah. The next couple of minutes. I think like if I were the smart, a smart DY skeptic, I would look at it and say, great. Yeah, we built proof of coverage. And for Laura Miner specifically, we built the first decentralized system that can verify that something is happening in real life. That is, you know, this whole category of physical crypto networks. Like that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say this is what happened in real life and we're going to prove that on-chain. And, you know, people like DeFi people have tried to do this through real-world assets, but it's always through an it's trusted intermediary. By the nature of radio networks, it's really the first time DeFi proof of coverage that they've, we've been able to, like, verify something just using these devices that pretty much only talk to each other and, and don't require any sort of, you know, like, you, you could realistically imagine, like, no nation states exist and Helium could, could still exist. Helium Laura. And so I think that's awesome. The skeptic in me would say, there's a reason why we started with Laura. Like, I don't think that was an accident. It's because, all right, if you're trying to verify something in the real world and you're trying, you have to set up all these radios to talk to each other to do that, you need radios that transmit really far and you need a lot of them. So you need them to be cheap. And for that reason, I think we started with Helium Laura like, and built this incredibly, you know, robust network across the entire world. But it's solving proof of coverage in LoRa doesn't mean we solved proof of coverage for 5G or other areas. Like network verification is still something that arguably is not solved. Yes, we have people running around with mappers and like they're in the very, very early days of these systems where you're starting to set up incentive models, but you know, you, you're going to have a hard time convincing a telco of that, for example, even if everyone on this call and listening to this podcast really believes it. And it's just a much harder problem. Like it's different for indoors versus outdoors. Like you have to take, you have, either have to get a mobile phones into the mix somehow, which has battery implications, or you need people walking around with these new types of devices, which I think historically the reason that Helium 5G didn't do that is because they just thought nobody's going to want to walk around with this box. Like why, why would we even like design this thing. And until Pollen did it, it wasn't obvious that the market would even, you know, support it. And so, yeah, the take on my, my I guess that's my bare take on group of coverage is like, great. Obviously we did the really easy version of this, which is a LoRa device that can talk 10 miles to each other. But yeah. the version of this where we need to actually know like where people don't have coverage, where people are using their phones the most, where that cover, where the, where the value of coverage is most valuable and it's not being served right now. 
is still in the early days. And there's a lot of experimentation, obviously, around that Paula and Helium are both doing around the mapping devices to make that system more robust. But if we learned anything from Laura, it's that like gaming, gamers are creative. Like we're still, you know, they're, the Helium network has gone, uh, come a really long way in terms of gaming over the past year, but it's still a nature, it's, you know, it's part of the business. Yeah, agreed. I mean, and also thinking about it from like a, a tokenomic perspective, I think, I mean, both with Helium and Paul and the rewards to early kind of adopters, early miners probably don't need to be quite as outsized. I mean, I know with Helium's Laura network, there was like a huge supply crunch and COVID and, you know, su- supply chain shortages kind of globally, which helped slow down the rate at which miners were able to be distributed. And, you know, many people that paid for miners had to wait months. And so more rewards went to fewer early adopters. But I think there's some fine tuning and calibration that that should be done, you know, with within the limits of like an organic system, you want things to be kind of like a free market. But in terms of like what the payback should be roughly for a miner, I mean, it's obviously a huge risk buying expensive telecom hardware to mine tokens from a project that you haven't ever heard of and no one else ever has heard of either. But at the same time, like, I think if you can extend your runway for proof of coverage rewards to where it's still pretty profitable to, to buy and deploy the equipment from one protocol versus another, you give yourself more time to get data transfer live and paid for, which is, I think, what all these protocols are really gunning for right now in terms of the race for kind of paid data transfer or bytes for dollars as Steve Sellers on our team likes to discuss. So yeah, I mean, thinking about it from a tokenomic perspective, I think also could be helpful. There's also this like time-based, time versus growth-based POC model that I've heard discussed a bit. Helium and Paul are kind of time-based. So like every day, the same amount of rewards are issued to miners in terms of tokens. And then as the number of miners on the network grows, that numerator stays the same and is divided by an ever-growing denominator of the number of miners. But there's couple of new projects that are thinking about this kind of token distribution mechanism in terms of awarding tokens based on growth of the network as a whole. So I, I don't actually know if there's a mechanism in there where you can reward early adopters more than others. I'm sure you can kind of tweak things to do that, but it's much less kind of outside outsized rewards for early adopters and much more like kind of a constant steady stream of token flows. I think HiveMapper is doing that and then maybe one other project in the energy space I'm not sure if they've announced yet. But yeah, I mean, Salamash, have you guys come across projects that are time-based versus growth-based in terms of early token distribution? Do you guys have a view on that? Yeah, I'm happy to start things off. I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's a couple of mechanisms that we're describing here. The time-based distribution is definitely one that's really interesting. The other one that we've seen that's pretty interesting is also location-based build-outs, right? Because when you think about like a Helium or a Pauling, for example, when they built out in the initial stages, there was just this like frenzy for tokens whereby everyone and their mother wanted to buy a miner because they could pay back in three to four days. And the result is you just had amazing amounts of concentration in like four to five areas. Like if you went to SF, New York, you know, Chicago, maybe at the end of the day, like you were seeing people earn absolutely no rewards because there were just so many people in like a 50 square mile radius in New York that bought a miner. And the result was like, you had this asymmetric build out of the network where like coverage was decent in a couple areas and the rest of them were kind of all over the place. I think one of the really interesting things that we're seeing nowadays is protocols are thinking a lot more about dynamism and how they incentivize location-based build outs. So you can think about how you want to build out your network over time by sort of launching on a location by location basis, but also sort of 
create dynamic algorithms to reward people incrementally for providing coverage in areas that, you know, really need coverage as like a linking spot at the end of the day, like Helium and Pollen started to think about this a little bit, but had never really got massively dynamic about it. And the result was, you know, this asymmetric build out that we've seen. I think a couple of networks that we've seen in the last couple of months have really been thinking deeply about this. And I don't want to dox anyone, but there's one that we've been working with, which is, you know, this amazing team, a bunch of ex-telco slash big tech entrepreneurs who have a very thoughtful approach to all of this, which is to say that, you know, Helium and Pollen went through this frenzy of like, how many tokens can we pay out as quickly as possible to try to get as many miners as they could. And the result was, again, high amounts of concentration in a couple of areas. And just when you see new protocols coming to the space now, they're being a lot smarter about thinking through how they want to enable dynamism of build out on a location basis as well. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, the only thing, I just think like the broader... I think there's two ways to frame the question. One is like, how far are we on proof of coverage? The other question, which we didn't haven't talked about, is just like, how much of proof of coverage actually has to be on-chain versus off-chain? Like there are startups yeah. that are completely unrelated to DY that are trying to build the like off-chain, just, you know, marketplace where you're going to aggregate like different telco networks and tower companies or property or buildings and deployers like Hexagon. And so, you know, their thesis is like, you zero percent of it needs to be on chain like you can do all of this off chain i think where helium started was all of proof of coverage needs to be off chain now we're taking some you know now with the recent changes to the network part of that is going to be off chain and so i think that it could mean a lot of different things like again, i think network verification is the piece that it all comes down to that we have just haven't exactly figured out even though there's been a lot of progress and we're getting there but yeah the you could imagine a lot of different methods you could imagine like i know all of our friends all of our friends steve is uh, building NFT based, like, you know, you, you win different prizes or game of kind of products or going and bear validating coverage in a certain area. And so you can imagine for me, that's awesome. Like this is like the first like play to earn game that is actually useful in the real world. And nobody's paying attention right. to it, but the, yeah, I think it, this question of like proof of coverage and how much of it needs to be off chain, how much needs to be on chain, how. Who do you need to prove the value of the network to? Like, do you need to prove it to Verizon? Do you need to prove it to consumers individually? And how do you do that and build that trust is really the big question that is, you know, surrounding all of DY. Yeah, no, absolutely. Want to pivot a bit now to talk about, you know, why now? I think we've got a, a fantastic meme generated by Sal that I'm going to screen share here. But for any listeners that aren't able to see the video, it's essentially the famous Grim Reaper meme where he's knocking on multiple doors and there's blood trailing out of the preceding three because he's killed someone or done something bad in those. And he's knocking on the fourth door. He's got the helium and pollen logos on his chest, you know, representing DUI. And then the three doors he's already been to are owning towers, exclusive access to Spectrum and customer lock-in from physical Sims. And he's knocking on the radio networks at scale door. And I guess the title of this uh, this masterpiece is Telco Motes. So Sal, we'd love to hear a bit about what inspired this masterpiece. And then I think it can direct our conversation to why now in terms of uh, decentralized cellular networks. Yeah, definitely. But that's not both about like uh, an inordinate amount of time reading and studying and talking to people in the telecom industry. And, you know, honestly started like a couple of years ago from a place of zero knowledge. And so we didn't have anything to unlearn. We just had fresh eyes to go and try and figure it out. And... What we noticed was like when we thought about like the per telcos were a really good business. Like if you were investing in telco networks in the nineties, you made a lot of money. And 
we went on this quest to figure out like what are the modes in the telco business and how do we think about DY in relation to those. The first one that got peeled away was owned like property, you know, owning scarce assets that are useful for a bunch of reasons is a mode. And whether that's owning towers, whether it's owning buildings, like it, it's all the same. At the end of the day, DY, the, the value that DY is going to unlock is basically the value that property owners today are not leveraging to the full extent because they could have more value by putting radio networks on it. Um, and so the first telco mode, which was owning the towers, like kind of fell away. It started in the 80s and 90s when independent tower companies started being built. But Telco still owned a huge portion of their towers on their balance sheet up until like 2012, 2015, 2016 era when they all sold them off. The first guy to do this, this the, the, the uh, CEO of T-Mobile, John McGarris, they and this dude, like, so 2012 comes, he comes in to T-Mobile on his seventh day as CEO. He decides to sell the entire tower portfolio to Crown Castle for like $5 billion and just says, we're going to reinvest all this money into building out the best 4G and 5G network with the best speeds and the best coverage, and also going to spend a shit ton of money on marketing. And like it very clearly worked, that strategy. And so Verizon and AT&T followed, you know, point being like today, the telcos don't own many of these towers. They offloaded them all onto either private equity investors who are investing on behalf of institutions and endowments. Or these three public REITs that have, I don't know, a little bit over between like 100 and 150 billion dollars of market cap between them, called American Tower, Crown Castle, and SBA. And these, you know, the really interesting thing I think about the history of this first mode is that when the telcos sold, this was back in 2012, the telcos sold their towers to the public markets, to these REITs or the private markets. They sold them for like half a million dollars. The tower takes like $300,000 to build maybe. So you can think of them trading at like 50 to 60% premium to book value, which is, you know, I think that everyone thought a decent premium at the time. What nobody realized though, is that like towers just have insane pricing power. They're you know, like, this is like the Warren Buffett school of investing. Like his whole idea was let's buy businesses with untapped pricing power. And if you can buy the Washington Post and stick like another quarter on the price tag of the, on the cover like every year. That's a fucking amazing business. You can do the same thing with Coca-Cola even better. And so, you know, Tower, I think the markets back then didn't realize like, we're just going to put one, we're going to put more networks on each tower and that's going to make it way more efficient because you can have three networks on a tower instead of one. Before that, the telcos, even though that physically was obviously capable, like possible, they just like hated, you know, their competitors, they hate each other. They could never come to terms on actually sharing infrastructure. And so as soon as these towers became independent, they went, they, you know, it, it, there was only AT&T on the tower. They went to Verizon and T-Mobile and said, hey, you're, this, these are gaps for you. Come fill them in. They raised prices on everybody and fees an extreme amount. And they made a shit ton of money. Like the now these towers, if you try to buy them on the public markets in a REIT, you're going to pay like $2 million per tower. So there was like a three to five X expansion just in the multiples that these things trade at as the market realized the pricing power that these towers have over the last couple of years. And just a side note, like there's this really interesting story as well, where somebody tried to give the towers a taste of their own medicine. And they realized that like most towers are built on ground leases that are like 30 years long. And the way that ground leases work in the US is that at the end of a lease, like you actually own the property on it. And so some like PE hedge fund guys started buying all the ground leases out from under towers that had like five or 10 years left on the leases with the idea of like, you know, we're going to own these towers. And because of zoning laws, you can't really build 
like you can't build another one next to it. And so these tower companies had to go out and just like basically pay these investors to go away and take their piece of the cut over the last couple of years. But yeah, go, going back to the other modes of the telco, like the second one is Spectrum, right? You can basically just go down the telco balance sheets into what they own that is rare that other people don't have access to. So towers got off the balance sheet. Spectrum is still on the balance sheet today, but the FCC in 2020 unlocked like a massive amount of Spectrum, which they hadn't done for 35 years. Basically, like all of the innovation we've seen in the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth over the last 35 years has all been on these unlicensed bands where like literally just nobody wanted them. Like when the FCC was giving out bands in the 80s or 70s or 60s or whatever it was, they thought that like the frequency of hydrogen was like close to these bands. And so they, you know, they thought like, or they made microwave operate these bands. And they thought that nobody would ever be able to use them for cellular communication. So it's called like the industrial scientific and medical band and basically got made because people thought the spectrum was worthless. And this has like sparked all of the innovation in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, like you know, tens of billions of dollars per year, not hundreds of economic value for all of the U.S. And so, you know, the FCC saw this as a commissioner or he's not commissioner anymore, but he was commissioner up until a little bit ago, just decided I'm going to unlock a huge amount of spectrum and see what entrepreneurs are going to go do with it across the U.S. And so I think Helium was the first version, really, you know, really innovative kind of like products that went and leveraged this unlicensed spectrum. But for me, it's crazy that people don't look at this and aren't like, holy shit, we have to go, we have to go see what's being built using all this spectrum. Like the amount of spectrum more than doubled year over year. That's never happened before. Yeah. No, all the last one is just, sorry, go ahead, Mash. No, I was going to say, talking about these things. go ahead, Sal. That was amazing. <laughs> No, last one being eSIMs is like everyone who's listening, if you haven't tried an eSIM like carrier change, please go try it. Literally, I went from Verizon to T-Mobile in less than 10 minutes. Most of that is waiting for the eSIM to refresh. It takes like five minutes of just a black screen on your phone. But keep in mind, this is like JP Morgan launching, or maybe that's a little bit too tough on T-Mobile, but imagine like JP Morgan launching like a FinTech app in like 2013 or 2014, to like the V1 of it to compete with Robinhood. Like this is what this app is right now. Over the next couple of years, it's you're literally people are just going to be able to switch between different MVNOs. I mean, those carriers at the flick of a switch, similar to how we have, you know, banks and FinTechs today. And the average person uses like 10 as like, you know, five to 10 FinTech apps. And so, yeah, all of these modes. So I think if I was a Tonko shareholder, I'd be really nervous. Like the only thing I have left is a shit ton of radios deployed all over the US. And now I see people like Hexagon and like other DY networks are also proving out that, oh, wait, we can all band together and also deploy a shit ton of radios like really actually faster than you can. And so it's a, I think it'll be a lot of fun for all of us to watch the market realize this over the next couple of years. Yeah. No, all of that, again, incredibly thoughtful and detailed research from Sal. We'll try to bring it up to the high level to say like, look, the reason all of this is relevant is because this isn't a crypto trend. I feel like everyone still kind of looks at DY and says, this is a crypto thing. No, this is a telco thing. At the end of the day, telcos used to have custom hardware, custom software, and 100,000 employees to manage their systems, you know, across marketing, sales, installation, everything. Now you have this really commoditized hardware, which means all of the power is actually in the software to manage these systems. And you can actually just think about DY as the next stage of automation here. You know, Verizon has 100,000 people across those sales functions I mentioned. Wireless networks built in a decentralized way are going to require like maybe one one hundredth of that. And at the end of the day, the nature of 5G, again, another telco trend, the nature of 5G is going to require small cells to be deployed at scale. 
it's not a crypto thing. There's not going to be towers aren't going to be the way that 5G really scales over time. So when we think about like the most innovative companies in the telco space, it's companies like Rakuten, even Dish Network to some degree that are really building out these next gen 5G type networks. They're using radios to deploy across the world right now, the same way DY is. What DY does is it's an incredibly powerful distribution mechanism for these networks to sort of enable data transfer in a far more automated way than it's ever been before. And again, the result of all of this is just better unit economics, better businesses, and the result is value flowing through to the customers. I'll let Connor yeah, moderate in a second, but I, I want to give a little more attention to one thing that you know Sal touched on and I, I think you know deserves a lot more coverage, which is really this this last, you know, this last, you know, moat that has been attacked, which is you know, locking through physical sins. And, you know, we're really beginning to see the ESIM trend take place. So I think there's two key events. One is T-Mobile, I think just last week, um, you know, beginning to use the concept of an ESIM to almost vampire attack coverage kind of customers from these other large carriers. It's super, it's super interesting way, I guess, you know, how, what they're doing is they're basically, you know, telling people, Hey, you can come download this, you know, digital SIM, you know, have it on your phone. And for three months, you can go try our plan and we'll prove it to you that our coverage is actually better than whatever you use right now. And if you think about, you know, as a consumer, oh, if I have AT&T, the switching costs for me are so high mentally. You know, I have to go down and drive to the store. I have to change my whole plan. I'm locked in for, you know, often two to two plus years. I mean, you know, all those things really go away when, you know, you have one of these large carriers go out and basically say like, no, we're going to prove it to you. Like, you know, our coverage is better and you're going to switch after these three, three free months. The other kind of big event that happened last week, which I think really is an inflection point in the industry and we'll probably talk about for a few minutes is, you know, Apple announcing that their new line of iPhones, the iPhone 14 and not 14 Pro, you know, are, are eSIM only. And this, you know, really kind of just changes the whole dynamic. You, you can probably have Steve on this and, you know, he can give you an earful about how big a deal this is. You know, him, you know, working at Google for, you know, almost a decade dealing with this and you know, thinking about how the, you know, SIM card space and how much that takes up on, on the physical board of the iPhone, you know, getting rid of that is such a big deal. But, you know, more importantly, the, you know, the idea that a phone is only, is going to be eSIM only really changes the balance of power away from the carriers. And I think really opens up a, you know, significant market opportunity for, you know, smaller MVNOs and also for DY to exist in the space. Just a super interesting kind of concept that, you know, you've kind of removed the last big switching cost. I mean, now that switching cost is effectively zero, it's a race to the bottom in terms of data costs, because other than loyalty, you know, to a particular brand or, you know, let's say Disney wants to make their own kind of network or Nike, you have a lot of loyalty too. Other than just brand value or, you know, regional value, the only thing that people are going to compete on is cost. I and mean, as I'm sure we all can, you know, give a whole speech on, now, I think DUI its biggest competitive advantage is just, you know, a kind of a factor of cost. And then it can deliver, you know, a single gigabyte of data, you know, 50 cents versus what, you know, roaming costs right now are anywhere between, you know, 150 and $5. So, you know, when you have this race to the bottom, you have no switching costs. You know, it, it really just sets up a, an environment that allows decentralized networks to win because no one does, no one cares if they have AT&T or T-Mobile. They're not really going to care what's in the top left of their you know, phone, it's really just going to be, you know, who provides the strongest coverage and how low can my bill be at the end of the day? Yeah, I just, I'm a huge symbol. So I'm going to add two things there, which is one, like the, there's two telco arguments, you know, imaginary like telco bearings on this take that I, I think people will think about. One is that people will say, you said they've been around since 2018, like, great. Now we have a bunch of you but who really gives a shit? I think for me, it's not so much the fact that there's 
no physical sim because we've had these sims and phones for a while. It's like, and I encourage everyone again, like download it and try it. Like, it's not just that you can switch carriers. It's like baked into iOS already. Like when I go and like, try to message somebody through iMessage, I can choose which carrier it's on. I can really easily in my settings, like switch between my primary and secondary carrier for data or for voice or for SMS. And so like, it's not like this is a new feature that now we're figuring out. It's like Apple's already worked out these user kinks. And when iOS 16 gets released, like that, it was either this morning or tomorrow, it's going to be, it, yeah, it, it's all, it, I think the switching costs, like the churn that telcos historically have seen on their post-paid customers, it's just going to be absolutely decimated over, o- over the next year. The second thing that I think telco, yeah, the telco people will say in response to like, try to imply that eSIMS is not that big of an opportunity is just that, Jonah, when you, when you say that the only lock-in is customer loyalty, there's actually one more lock-in, which is like customer debt. Like these, the, the telcos actually, they pay for people's phones typically and you pay their, you know, you pay them for the phone back over time. And so the average customer has like 250, 350, somewhere around that, like dollars of debt. Again, this is like the average on $200 million, you know, 200 million customers. Like it's a lot. It, it, it's in total 45 billion dollars of accounts receivable that these telcos have. And so what, what I predict happening, like, I just know that this is such a market that fintechs will be so ready to go serve. Like phone financing is a massive market. There are so many lenders who are going to partner up with MBNOs and you're going to have find out pay later for phones you know, automatically embedded into the purchase process with some of these new challenger MBNOs. And it's something I'm really excited to see. I think underwriting phones will be a... I actually think fintechs will find that underwriting people's phones will make them like much, much better at knowing who the customer is and underwriting other products than they think. So I'm excited for that. And I think it'll come sooner than people think. Yeah. And who's going to default on their phone, right? Like, (laughs) I don't think anyone is. It's probably one of the stickiest that and I don't even know, maybe critical SaaS products for companies. I know there's, I forget the name of the PE investor out in Texas, but he's built his whole business on investing in SaaS SaaS products that that companies basically can't live without and it's the last thing they'll default on no i mean let's just we can pivot it to last or second to last topic let's talk about a a question i've had for a while and i've debated back and forth is like you've heard of first mover advantages and second mover advantages and i think helium is definitely the first mover in the DUI space. Pollen's probably the second big one which advantage do you think is more important and why i mean helium's obviously got the a big head start in terms of market cap and public awareness um, and funding. And Pollen has the second mover advantage of being able to see what Helium's done well, done poorly, and can innovate on that. So I guess, yeah, pitch the question to you guys. What do you think matters more here, first mover advantage or second mover advantage? Or is it still kind of TBD? I think that I would answer your question with the question, which is like, does it even make sense for there to be one single DY token or not? Like, I think this is the same thing that crypto saw or a lot of entrepreneurs saw back in 2018, 2019. It was like, should I build an ETH roll-up or do I go build an alternative layer one? Like, are the, you know, the, the kind of conventional wisdom back then was that the economies of scale of a layer one would just make it so cheap to attack every other network that Ethereum would would win everything, right? And that didn't really pr- prove out to be true. At least that's what the market says so far and customers are using these other chains. And so I think the quite real question is like, do these things all belong in a single system or not? The argument for why they should belong in a single system is like, you know, the argument that I think a lot of people believed about Helium last year, which is like, 
you're going to have the LoRa network. It's going to start bringing in cash flows, and then you're going to use those cash flows, like real you know, dollars for bytes, as Steve says, and use that to go fund 5G network build out and other build outs in the future. You know, what actually happened was we gave out 40% of the total tokens to the LoRa miners, and now there's a lot less left for 5G, and we don't actually have any cash flows from LoRa to go and fund these other networks. And so, you know, I think the they're as nice as it would be for everything to fit into one token because that means that a lot of investors and people can get behind the helium ecosystem and like all own one thing and you know that just tends to bring a lot more capital into the space because it's Mm -hmm. clear what to own i think the reality is that probably every network should have its own different token and i don't see why the like hnt treasury mechanism necessarily has to exist like i think it should be social con- or it, it, i think it's likely that it will be social consensus and when i say likely i mean like 55 45 odds i don't mean 80 20 odds but i do think that it makes sense for these tokens to have their own kind of like separate token distribution it makes sense for them to have their own governance it makes sense to have things separate to reduce risk of some other hack or something else and it just makes everything a lot simpler and if you're not getting a ton of benefits out of kind of having this like one big huge pooled treasury that you can go and deploy new networks with then i think the clear answer is they should all be separate it'd be different if you know if there were a lot of funding and cash flows and everything else like amassing to this giant conglomerate and i think that is the vision for what the network of networks kind of you know idea is over time but it's yeah that's a it's a big ambitious vision and and it's difficult to build and it's one versus many right there will be other many networks that pop up and try to build other things yeah and so i think that's the challenge but i have to drop guys it's been great thank you yeah Sal, where can we find you on twitter yes i am on twitter at danconia underscore crypto d-a-n-c-o-n-i-a and i'm on email sal at eb3.xyz yeah, Sal's a big, uh, awesome. Sal's a big Ayn Rand fan, as you can tell from from the name. <laughs> yeah, a little cheeky reference here or there. I'm Monero Mahesh at Twitter. Hopefully, a little bit easier to find. M O N E R O M A H E S H. But uh, guys, it's been a real time. Always love hopping on with you and just brainstorming and talking about everything that we see going on. And uh, really appreciate this conversation. And hopefully, it's one of many. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking with you. See ya. You can find me at Rich Homie Khan on Twitter and we'll talk soon.